0: Springsteen fans and welcome to episode 6 of Springsteen Time 70. This is the penultimate episode. We're almost to the end and today we're going to be going through songs number 20 to number 11, some of the greatest Springsteen songs ever. And to do this with me today I have the legend of mastering and master engineering Greg (laughs) Calby from Sterling Sound uh, who has mastered a a lot of amazing rock and punk albums over the years, everything from uh, Casey Musgrave's Golden Hour, which is not a rock or punk album, but just won uh, the Grammy for Album of the Year, uh, and Tame Impala, and Arcade Fire, and The National, all the way back to Patti Smith, and John Legend, and he mastered Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run in 1975. Greg, welcome. Thank you for joining thanks, us. It is an honor. Thanks
1: for asking me to be be here. I hope I can uh, say a couple of things that interest some of the listeners. Yes, anyway.
0: I think I think you definitely can. Um, so, Greg, if we could just start before we get into the songs, can you just briefly explain to our listeners what uh, a mastering engineer does exactly? Just yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I've had this conversation with so many people, but ma- you know mastering is the final stage of of record production. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we take a final mix and we enhance it to the point where the people who create it feel like it's been improved and has more impact, mm-hmm. more fidelity, um, more coherent, cleaner, whatever they whatever they wanted to do with their mixes, mm-hmm. we try to do more of it and re- deliver it back to them where they're they were very happy. And you know this is what I've been doing from the days of when, before cassettes, when right. vinyl and acetates were the only thing that you could listen to at home, right. all the way up through the you know, very first CDs in the early 80s, mm-hmm. and then now we're in the streaming era. So it's, uh, you know, it's basically taking what happens in the studio or what happens in somebody's headphones <laughs> and laptop these days right. and, and making it as presentable, as impactful as possible to, to, the, uh, to the audience, you know, to the fans.
0: Okay, so that it that is amazing, and we could obviously talk about that for the entire podcast if you wanted <laughs> to. Um, I would love to hear about what what you remember uh, from mastering Born to Run and what what needed to be done to it. Uh, just and any memories that you have, I would be happy to hear.
1: Yeah, well, um, Born to Run was it was a I probably could spend the entire um, forty minutes or yeah. whatever we have <laughs> talking about Born to Run because. Uh, uh, Bruce was in the studio with Mike Appel. Um, the first thing that they did was the actual song Born to Run, which was done prior to actually making the album. Mm-hmm. And um, I had become a Springsteen fan um, kind of on my own at that point. N- nobody in the studio really knew about him. Uh, there was something called the King Biscuit Flower Hour, mm-hmm. which was on the radio for many years. It was live concerts, it was kind of um, sent all over the country uh, to different ra- uh, radio stations. And it was Edgar Winter, and the opening act was Bruce Springsteen, who I'd never heard of. <laughs> and it was just Bruce on, on guitar. I don't think there was a harmonium, but I think there was something like he was doing something like that. And his voice was so astounding that I started to kind of peek around. And he had had uh, he had uh, "Greetings to Asbury Park," mm-hmm. and he also had uh, "Wild Innocent Innocent" and "Street <laughs> Shuffle." Easy yeah. for me to say. Uh-huh. So I really got into uh, into the the. Uh, these two albums, and there was a show at Avery Fisher Hall, Bruce Springsteen, and the E Street Band, mm-hmm. so with my ex-wife and myself, we went over to the show, and we were late. The, the uh, ticket booth was closed, and they let us in for free, and we walked in. It, was like, it wasn't like was half empty, but there was about 20 rows empty, Wow! and I came back to the studio the next uh, m- Monday, and I said to, to everybody, I said, this is an unbelievable <laughs> band. You guys got to hear this, and... Who did I tell was Jimmy Iovine, who was an assistant at the time. Right. So I kind of hit Jimmy, and if I ever get a chance to speak to him again mm-hmm. in his lofty position, I was a billionaire. <laughs> uh, I'll remind him that, Jimmy, I'm the first one. You had never heard of Bruce before, I mentioned. So that I always kind of took credit. So anyway, going going back, when they came into the studio, mm-hmm. I was pretty excited, and I think Jimmy got pretty excited because he kind of jumped on the train there and started working with him. And um, when the album was was being made, I um, you know jimmy was 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 working with them he was pretty much of a rookie at that point mm-hmm. and we were really good friends and so i would hear these songs in their in their early stages of mixing i mean the recording was done i mean i'd pass by the studio and hear it so i was very emotionally involved in the whole right. process because i had lo- i loved the band i yeah. kind of took took it as a personal thing right, right. and um, jimmy would bring mixes in and we'd listen to them and i kind of evaluate them now i'm only doing mastering at that point like 2 or 3 years i'm 25 years old i guess at yeah. that point yeah, so like the
0: same age as Bruce. Yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah. we were born in
1: 1949, both of us. Yeah, and um, my my wife Dana was at the time was a receptionist in the studio, so she knew all the guys because when they were recording. Mm-hmm. So you know it was kind of a big social, big group of kind of social. I right. took really a tremendous interest in it. And then um, there was this vibe that came around that this was the future of rock and roll and everything. I mean, everything was happening. Yeah. You know, it was just so so damn exciting. And, um, but I have to say that one of my most physical memories of listening when I first heard Jungle Land, I was by myself in the room with the tape, mm-hmm. trying to evaluate the mix and master it. And I'll never forget the chills that I got on the back of my neck. And this is like, it's, it, to, to experience music this way with no, nobody telling you anything beforehand about it and just getting it that way, that was my memory of Born to Run. It was just an emotional experience and, you know, songs like 10th Avenue Freeze Out, I mean, the studio was between 8th and 9th Avenue on 42nd right. Street. It, that was the world that we were working in. That's the world that Record Plan Studios, at that point, was in that neighborhood. Right. So the whole thing was all kind of very personal. That's all I can I can say.
0: Wow. that is Well, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. And uh, and uh, I guess one more question about that, because I'm just so interested. Um sure. With considering that the East Street Band is such a big wall of sound kind of band, when when mastering a band like that, was was your job to sort of rein it all in and get it to one sort of even even level that everything was sounding no, cohesive? No, that wasn't it. What
1: what it was was to to, to learn how to transfer what was on the tape onto a, onto this acetate, which was going to be used, and the lacquer was going to be used to make the records from. Everybody uh-huh. in the world is going to hear. A record at that point. Right. you know, this is there's no there's no nothing. That's the that's the document. That's mm-hmm. what you got. So you gotta make sure that what they did in the studio is gonna be at least as good as on record as it right. was and hopefully a little bit better. Right. So we used to do a lot of work in those in, in that era, a lot of work in the mid range, because the studio had these very big Hiddly monitors which gave you like more than you really had. Mm-hmm. So we then it would come into the cutting room and we'd have the lathe and you'd have to try to figure out what that didn't have, so that when it went to the record, people would get it. Yeah. So exactly. some of the songs, like Tenthaven or Freeze Out, I remember the sound of Fantastic. Jimmy did a great job. It worked really well. But some of the tunes need a little help in the vocal, and some of them need a little bit of cleaning up. I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, everybody, everybody should understand that in the subsequent digital era, I didn't do any of the mastering. And Bob Ludwig, fantastic mastering engineer, legendary guy, has mastered all of Bruce from, from right. Darkness on. Right, so I right, really right. only got to do the... The disc, if you have an original pressing like I do of Born <laughs> to Run, that's what I got my hands on. Yeah. But like I said, it was for me more than a technical, it was like really a, kind of an emotional experience.
0: Well, that is amazing, Greg. Thank you. And so without further ado, let's get into the music. That's why you're here. Um, so we're going to kick it off with uh, number 20 on the list, which is uh, a different uh, song. Born song. so of course that was born in the USA from born in the USA 1984 that's our song number 20 um, the song was actually originally written in 1981 uh, potentially for a film that a director named Paul Schrader was contemplating making uh, that film ended up being the light of day film sorry, Michael J Fox for which Springsteen wrote the song light of day uh, which now plays at the light of day festival which is named after the song in the movie um, And so this song was actually, as a lot of people know, it was. uh, There's the acoustic version that almost made it onto Nebraska, but the band itself actually cut the the version that uh, that is on the Born in the USA album, the big chest pounding version. That was cut in 1982 as well. They sort of heard the version and they sort of created it in the room. Roy Bitton sort of just came up with that uh, famous keyboard. Uh, melody on the spot. Max Weinberg just started doing the big uh, snare crack on his own, um, and then it wouldn't come to light, and people wouldn't actually hear it for another two years into 1984. And then so began Bruce Springsteen, the rock superstar, being on the cover of People magazine, and uh, well, he would have been on magazines before, but that but being the pop celebrity that he hadn't exactly been before. So, Greg, I'd love to hear what you think about. Born the born in the USA era, Bruce. You know, um,
1: having having really such an emotional attachment to the first two albums and the, the the kind of the street the street feeling of the characters in the albums, which uh, in the last couple of weeks and listening to some of the material I was going to be reviewing tonight, um, that was an era where you have to remember this is kind of the where video is really rearing its head, mm-hmm. and Bruce is really doing a, a video on this and. Yeah. I mean, I've never been like anti-showbiz, but to me, that wasn't the Bruce that I wanted to hear at that point. I okay. I, I knew that the lyrics, I knew I knew the lyrics were meaningful, mm-hmm. but there was something about the production that I felt was not. It's just not my kind of thing. So I would hear the right. song, and, and I and I've heard Bruce do it live, and it's fantastic. And I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I think that if if it could be redone, uh, in, with a production now, they would never make those choices on the synths and everything. But I always mm-hmm. just felt like overproduced over over exaggerated and not my favorite kind of Bruce stuff so
0: <laughs> interesting yeah i uh, I don't know it, if other people have that under yeah their no fans. they definitely do um, and it's interesting because i think 80s like born in the usa and tunnel of love era bruce it, it's probably the most polarizing thing because usually all the born, born to run and darkness and stuff before pretty if you're a fan of bruce you pretty much everyone pretty much loves or at least respects those albums and then Human Touch and Lucky Town and things like that, most people either hate it or they think, they understand that it's not his best thing. But some people think that Born in the USA, that era of Bruce is like their favorite Bruce because that's, that's like pop radio Bruce. Um, so yeah, I mean, to, to each their own. It's not my personal favorite, but I do, I do love a good uh, drive-down whatever, Highway 9 or the Parkway or whatever with the windows down and that, that blasting.
1: Well, you know, yeah. there's no doubt that, cra- the cra- you know, this is like, when, uh, you know, again, this week I came to a couple of realizations about Bruce, but, you know, Bruce as a craftsman, as a song craftsman, mm-hmm. this is an example of a, cra- a really crafty song. And he's, he's just such, so phenomenal as a writer. And uh, the other thing is, I, and I, I wanted to add this, it's maybe not so much about the music, but remember, like 1985, now Bruce has been out and about but you know, you really never know how much money everybody was able to keep from the tours, mm-hmm. how much money they got that got stolen. Right. Um, you have a record company trying to push a lot of records out. You have guys now. Bruce is not you know seventy years old now, but he wasn't seventy years old then. He was in his thirties at that point. So there's a lot of pressure on an artist to to produce stuff that's yeah. going to sell, so that his tours will. Sell. You know, it's it's a there's a whole network of things that go on. So. Uh, I, I'm only saying this because in that era, I didn't realize that as yeah. as much as I do a much more understanding of it right. and I would be much more critical. Like, oh, he's selling out or what's that? <laughs> That's a pop radio. What kind of crap? You, yeah. But, you know, you got to put everything in perspective from a, a life of an artist like that because he's a, he's a, you know, he's a once in a lifetime type of an artist.
0: Yeah, even into Nebraska, like he had, at that point, the river had made him a good chunk of money. Um, the touring from it and he had the, he had a new record contract. He'd already gone through the big lawsuit against, Mike Pell in the late 70s, so he was getting more money. The River Had Hungry Heart, uh, which was his first top ten pop single. Um, so at that point, when he went to make Nebraska, that was uh, the first time he re- he really had money in his pocket. And th- But then after, uh, and I think he writes about this in his autobiography too, once Born in the USA comes out, then he, he said, I think he described it as like an embarrassing amount of money like from that album. And then his whole life changed again. Well,
1: don't forget, it, in that area you have CDs, LPs and cassettes. I mean, yeah. its money is being printed by I mean it's just incredible the amount of money is flowing into the business at that point.
0: Right, completely. Yeah. Okay, on to number 19, which is a fan favorite and a live version uh from the late 70s that is unforgettable. So that's Prove It All Night from Darkness on the Edge of Town, 1978. That is song number 19 on our list. And that it's a great song, but one of the reasons it's so high on this list uh, is because of the live version that was played on the Darkness tour in 1978. There are some great YouTube videos. There's obviously the bootlegs from the Capitol Theater um, played in Passaic. The show is in September. Uh, I think it's the 19th through the 21st of 1978, which are iconic around... These these here parts, uh, but there's a great video uh, of an eleven minute version of "Prove It All Night" from uh, a show in I believe it's Largo. I think is the town in Maryland, and uh, there's this gigantic opening, like just searing guitar solo, and then there's another solo that plays over the organ at the end, and it just made the it just made this song sort of a live legend in my eyes, anyway. So, what do you got about "Prove It All Night"?
1: Just a, f- a fantastic song that, it, it, to me, it, you know, it's it's the passionate nature of Bruce about just being alive, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think anybody would want to be in a position in their life where they feel every day that kind of passion, and especially in a relationship, uh, as as he just pours out his emotion, pours it out so so heavily, right. and um, I just I just love the song. It's a it's a fantastic song. It's a great double entendre in a lot of ways because you got to prove a lot of things to yourself. You could prove yourself all night to a woman, or you could prove it all night that you love being alive, or that you can stay up late, or that you can do anything. And yeah. this is this is a hook that, over the years, over the over the years, and has been many years. Every once in a while, it pops in my head that you got to prove <laughs> it all night, you know. And yeah. uh, it's a, it's a just a great use of the of language and of of, of Bruce's strength. So I I love this too.
0: Right? Yeah, I I love it too. The the one thing. On darkness that I don't always love, and it, it always kind of bothers me. On this song, is the use of the either like the bells or like a like a triangle, or, or there, there's just like always like the ping. in the like Glockenspiel, right? Yeah, that's his, that's his thing.
1: That's his, always been his. Yeah,
0: and like in the in this album in particular, I don't know. There, there's just a couple songs where it always just like I wish, I just kind of <laughs> wish it wasn't there. Uh-huh. But uh it's a great song anyway, and whenever that he plays it live, uh, it goes on forever, and people love it, and I love it too. So on to number 18, which is a song that gets covered constantly, maybe even more than I'm on Fire, which we talked about in the last episode. So this is number 18. Everything dies, baby,
1: that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and make me tonight in Atlantic City.
0: All right, so that was Atlantic City from Nebraska. Of course, 1982, that's number 18 on our list. And this is another song, like I said, that's been covered a million times. Uh, there's actually a, a, one of my favorite covers of it, um, is Chris Cornell did a great version in 2012 for a Hurricane Sandy benefit. Um, I really like that version. Mm. But anyway, th- this is a great song uh, inspired by the uh, the real-life house bombing of... Uh, the chick, the quote unquote chicken man, a mob boss in Philadelphia named Philip Testa, um, and in 1981, and uh, the song. It's an it's an easy song to sing along to, even though it's sort of an unsettling lyric.
1: You know, this this was the like emblematic of an attitude that we all had in the 70s when we were watch watching the old uh, the old model kind of disintegrate. Atlantic City was the was the perfect example. I mean, when I was a kid. You'd meet relatives and friends. We went on a honeymoon in Atlantic City. It's like, you went on your honeymoon in Atlantic <laughs> City? It was, like, it was like the personification of decay. And, wow. you know, and And I was listening to this the other day. I hadn't heard it in a while. Mm-hmm. And I just, it's Bruce going like, look at this shit. Yeah. Look what's going <laughs> on. He's, he's the announcer. And he's like, he's the observer and the announcer. But he wants everybody to know that this is meaningful, that this, is, this stuff is dying. And you know the, that culture was—you know—it's a combination. The culture was dying, the economic model was dying, and he's seeing all this, and he's and he's able to express it in a way that everybody kind of kind of can identify with. So this is Bruce. You know, he is an everyman in a lot of ways, which makes it difficult to see everyman on stage in Broadway doing doing a show for three or four hundred dollars <laughs> tickets, which is another part of the story. But he—I'm I'm only saying that to, to tell you how much it meant to me to have an artist who was really saying what what we were feeling right and you know the, you, you can you can you can say what you want to listen the stones van morrison but this guy is from our culture this is a guy seeing the same things we're seeing and he's able to express it and i think i think when you go to a Bruce show and you see everybody knowing every word this is in my generation we're talking about 60 and overs now mm-hmm. who still have tears in their eyes with these songs that's why
0: right and the uh, and going right into the apprehension about atlantic city and the hotels or the casinos that were opening in the mid to late 70s and the uh the immediate insurgence of organized crime around those businesses and people wondering if bringing all of all of that glitz and sort of and money to Atlantic City trying to bring it back and build it back up was actually beneficial for the city in the long run, which you could argue one way or another and uh one other little tidbit before we move on uh that I read in i think in Brian Hyatt's book that I talk about all the time um that Philip Testa, the chicken man whose house got blown up, who died when his house got blown up, Uh, his son Salvatore Testa sold an Atlantic City nightclub to Donald Trump at a considerable profit uh, in 1982. So, who knew? That was, I guess, prior—I don't know if that was before or after Trump Plaza and Trump Taj Mahal and all that stuff. I don't know. I'm not— I haven't been around as long as long as you have it's but not, uh, still a depressing place yeah I'm yeah honest. yeah um, <laughs> alright onward to number 17 uh, a big fan favorite and uh, a song that is higher on a lot of other people's lists but not as high on mine make it real you wake up in the night So that is Badlands at number seventeen uh, from *Darkness on the Edge of Town*, of course, 1978. And uh, I'm gonna start this one off, Greg, with a trivia question for you. Do you know what that opening, like galloping riff, rips off? Because he revealed it l- years later. It's a song from 1965. Uh huh. Any idea? No. No. It's uh, he revealed later. It's the the uh, the Animals' uh, "Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood." If you listen to it. It's in a different key, but the uh, the guitar melody is almost identical. And he, and he admitted that. Dun, 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 yeah.
1: Dun, 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 yep. Baby. Yeah. I used to sing that in my band. Yeah. I can't believe I missed that. Yeah. And maybe if I wasn't listening to it again, I might have got it. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but
0: <laughs> anyway, so Badlands, a huge fan favorite. It's a gigantic, sort of triumphant, yet impassionately sad song that uh, is emblematic of the whole Darkness era from Bruce. There's a lot of emotion in everything that he does uh, from that era. Um, And a fun anecdote that I I read somewhere, Bruce was in the middle of working on that song in New York uh, when the great blackout of 1977 happened. In New York, uh, when everything went black for a whole 24, 25 hours. And he was on Fifty Seventh Street. That was that's uh, the weird parallel to incident a couple of years earlier. Who could who could have guessed? But uh, but yeah, it's a it's a huge song. This is like quintessential Bruce. It doesn't get much Springsteener than this. I think.
1: You know, I, all I can say is I I, I love the song. And I love the chorus, and I love the harmonies in the chorus, which I, which I think are pretty unique for a Bruce song, to have those, those kind of high harmonies in there. I guess it's Steve Van Zandt singing them. I, I don't know. I didn't study it, but it sounds to me like right, like he might have been. But I, I, just lo- I just love the triumphant nature of the song and, and the energy and uh, basically the rebelliousness. of. And, and I don't know. To me, it represents Bruce at his best. I, I, I don't have a problem in any way. What don't you like about
0: it? Uh... I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry to yeah. put you on the spot, but you said it's yeah, not no, your favorite. No. I,
1: uh, it's a little sing-songy in a way, right? Yeah. It's a little... the,
0: I think the one thing. So I mean, it's out of 300 and something songs, it's yeah. number 17 for me. So I yeah. do like, I, I do like it, but I think that uh, there's something about like the the timber, like the tremble in his voice on, yeah. on darkness, like especially in this song, yeah. like gets to me sometimes. And I think it was just the way that he was happened to be singing when he was recording that album. I don't think any of the other albums sound exactly the same uh his vocal wise but i mean there's there's still plenty to like like the call and response uh guitar and sax solos between him and clarence are one of the best uh that he's done and uh yeah and and when it when he plays it live and he always plays it live uh people just go crazy for it so On to number 16, uh, which is another darkness song, uh, but one that's a little bit slower. All right, that's Something in the Night, number 16, Off Darkness on the Edge of Town, 1978. And it was first performed, fun fact for the Jersey fans, first performed at Count Basie Theater in 1976. It was then called the Mammoth Art Center. And uh, it's just this sort of hypnotic rock lullaby that is, as far as the studio work, is just like, I think is really, really polished and beautiful. But I'd love to hear if you have some critiques from your, from your perspective. Well, you
1: know, to me, this is like a song song that just creates like a a whole environment. And um, it it, it always took me back to when I used to drive a cab in New York in the 60s, like Mm -hmm. night shift, two, three, four in the morning. I mean, you know, the the Roy Bitton hook and the the riffs that he's coming up with just create this feeling of open space. And to me, just driving around, you know, it just reminded me of driving around that kind of loneliness. And then there's something in the night I mean, you know, I you know, sometimes you don't know when a writer writes something and what he means by something, mm-hmm. but when it when you kind of combine it with the mood of the song, to me this is just all about possibility, you know, and right. and it, in the and the openness of it. Um, I, I, I this of, of all the tunes that you gave me to review, this is the one that I kind of. Never really spent that much time thinking. I knew I liked it, uh-huh. and I really loved it when I listened to it this time. And I loved it because it put me into a certain mood, and, and it was a little bit of a different mood. Mm-hmm. But it was also this this one of you know of of, of him of of of, of uh, wonderment, you know, of watching and wonderment and kind of announcing something. So, uh, yeah. you know, he's a preacher in a lot of ways. To to he speaks to obviously he speaks to
0: people around the world.
1: I mean, yeah. there's a war He's this a world fame a world world quality act. So.
0: Yeah. I will say as somebody who lived in Asbury Park for a couple of years, the, the riding down Kingsley line, I've definitely listened to something in the night and been driving on Kingsley street. Uh-huh. And, uh, at, and it's definitely been at night. And then I'm just like, this is what Bruce used to do. Um, so I've definitely been there. And the one, uh, little fun fact that I did not know before researching this is at the end of the song, when the drums kind of, cut out and there's just like this very simple drum beat uh, that was queued up by Bruce on the spot. Max was playing and Bruce just like threw his arm up and Max like stopped doing most of the beat, uh, which is I guess what he wanted him to do. And that's why the the drums are so sort of isolated and austere at the end of the song. Um, So onward to number 15. We are getting close to the end, you guys. Number 15... Which is another song about uh about Asbury Park features. Okay, that was 4th of July, Asbury Park, parentheses Sandy, close parentheses, uh, from Wild and the Innocent East Street Shuffle, 1973. Uh, this is like one of his most early poetic, scene-setting, romanticizing, nostalgic songs about the boardwalk in Asbury Park, uh, which in 73 was uh, starting beco- to become the desolate, uh, rundown place that it would be for the next... 30 ish years it's uh it's a lot better now if you want to take a ride down um but uh it's just one of those classic tunes uh the sandy in the song is about diane lozito uh springsteen's girlfriend at the time who he was living with in bradley beach yes he was living in nearby bradley beach a town over because he'd been evicted from asbury park uh and did not write about asbury park while he was living in asbury park fun fact um, so I have a very personal connection to this, having lived in the town that it, that the song is completely about. But uh, as a New York native, I'd love to hear what you think about this. Um,
1: well, a couple of things. Uh, there was a type of, of gal back in those years that was kind of lost. Mm-hmm. Usually, parents didn't understand her. You know, this is post sixties. Uh, I don't know if uh, this generation can really understand what a rebellion it was against what the parents, how the parents lived, the, the, the kind of martini lifestyle, the business, the businesses, the money. There was a counterculture, and a lot of kids could not live with their parents anymore, and they were really lost. They were you, you met a lot of lost souls out there, and that's what, stru- what always struck me about this song. First of all, musically, it's just un- unbelievable. I've listened to this song hundreds of times, one of my favorite ones. And it, again, it, it 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 brought something to me that I felt about people that I had met, and I, I didn't I didn't travel in the same kind of circles that Bruce did. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I got married really young. I live with my parents. I was never out and about the way he was. But you would meet these people who were kind of lost, and Bruce knew about them and lived with them. And this that's why I love the song so much. But I got to say one thing quickly about Asbury Park, mm-hmm. and um, it. it because I, I vowed that I would say it, but I worked with a, a band from Spain uh, about two years ago, and they came to New York for th- for, for they were going to be here for three days, and they worked with me one day, and then I said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I figured they're going go to Central Park or something. They said, oh, we're good, four guys, we're going to Asbury Park. Wow. And I said, why? are you, It was the winter. <laughs> I said, why are you going to Asbury Park? And the guy looked at me like I was crazy, and he just looked and he looked at me. He said, Bruce. Yeah. And, you know, my feeling as a New Yorker is that you're going to schlep all the way down to Asbury Park on the train in the winter, but this is, this is what this place means around the world to people, you know, and it's from songs like this, you know, these are powerful songs.
0: Yeah, completely. And uh, one, one more note on uh, Madame Marie, the, uh, the fortune teller that's mentioned in the song who became famous, uh, at least locally because of this song. Um, She didn't just, it wasn't just someone who Springsteen knew about uh, and, happened to include in the song. Convention Hall in Asbury Park in the 60s and early 70s got huge acts that, like, that was the place for people, for big bands, the Rolling Stones, the Who, to come play. So, Madame Marie, her last name is Costello, um, she <laughs> she read, uh, she read fortunes for uh, Ray Charles and Elton John and the Rolling Stones and God knows how many others uh, until she passed away in 2008. Um, so, I can't imagine the things that she told rock icons. Um and now that the stand continues, I actually uh got a reading from her granddaughter who runs it now. Um and I don't know how accurate it was. We'll see. <laughs> uh but I know I know that it was 50 bucks for like 10 minutes. So uh <laughs> so it better be good. Um but all right, onward to Onward to number 14, which is another song about Asbury Park. I didn't plan this, I promise, but this is number 14, and you, could, you might be able to guess what it is. My city of City of Ruins from The Rising 2002. Uh, that was number 14 on our list. And that, uh, that song has a lot of meaning to a lot of people down at the Jersey Shore. It was originally written in 2000 uh, for an Asbury Park Christmas show, a benefit to help promote revitalization in the city, uh, which at that time was still very uh, impoverished. Even at the waterfront, the inland on the western side of the tracks is still Pretty, pretty impoverished, but now there's all fancy buildings on the other side. Um, but that uh, the, the song took on a completely different meaning after 9-11, uh, when a lot of people put My City of Ruins to the ruins of the World Trade Center. And, uh, and it especially got that meaning when Springsteen performed it uh, the, at a, uh, a tribute show called America, tribute to heroes. It's on YouTube. It's a soulful gospel kind of song, um, and it's the final song on the Rising, and it's just one of one of those songs that if you're a New Jersey person, you know this song, and you've come to love this song, even even though it's a later Bruce song.
1: My, I you know, only have one thing to say about this. I mean, this, obviously, it's a fantastic song, but it, his vocal on this, to me, is is almost like a different person, different personality. I don't exactly know how he sang it. I uh, and, and I haven't heard any of the live versions, but he there's almost a different character uh, delivering the message of this song, and it's a strong message. And you know the fact that it's really constructed as a prayer, mm-hmm. and you know with the gospel choir and, and everything. I mean, it's a, it's really powerful. And it just you know, it's a, he's a nimble artist, and and I, I love the fact that as you go through the different periods, you could see that he's you know he, the, it's the craftsmanship that uh, along with with all the emotional uh, meaningfulness that's that makes him stand out you know for so many years you know
0: yeah to number 13 which is a song from tunnel of love tell me what i see Where i look in your eyes That was number 13, Brilliant Disguise from Tunnel of Love, a very popular fan favorite song, but easily the most popular song off of uh, Tunnel of Love. It was a, a top 10 uh, pop hit on Billboard. And I'd love to hear from you, Greg, what you think of the uh, Tunnel of Love production. <laughs>
1: uh, to me, this... This is a. I, I have no idea if it was designed this way, but it's a very deceptive song because it's uh, it's disguised actually as like a, a, a fun Latin rhythm. But if you really dig into the lyrics of this song, they're, they're about as cynical as Bruce has ever been. Oh yeah, about human nature, and and I love the fact that he's he's delving directly into human nature. And, and when I read. When I read his fantastic book and and the, the, the revealing of how much depression he's been through and how much darkness you know he really experienced, which you don't see on stage, which you just see the the, the kind of in, the enthusiastic Bruce, mm-hmm. this kind of fit when when I kind of put the pieces together, you know, there's something about Bruce that sees the truth and the truth in a lot of people is that you know everything is fake and I think the song is disguised that way. So I think it's absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah. Brilliant for brilliant disguise, yeah, and uh, yeah, and so much of Tunnel of Love it, it is tied to what at the time was a crumbling marriage, his first marriage to actress and model Julianne Phillips, uh, which was highly publicized in the tabloids, then breaking up. And uh, I always love the line, "I I want to know if it's you I don't trust, because I damn sure don't trust myself." Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's truer to a lot of relationships than people would like to admit. Um, So that's Brilliant Disguise at number 13. On to number 12, the ultimate Bruce Springsteen party song. Twelve. That's Rosalita. Come out tonight from Wild and New Street Shuffle. Of course, uh, this is the like I said, the ultimate Bruce Springsteen party song. This is the song that gets played in the stadium when the lights are back on. Already, the the encore is already a half hour in. Bruce is sweaty. Everyone's hot. People are considering calling out of work the next day, and uh, it's and it's it's funny because he. So many times big pop hits that people don't always know if it's going to be a hit or not, they don't write it to be a hit and then it becomes a hit. Springsteen wrote this to be the party song that he had not written previously. This is another one that uh, people always think is about Diane Lozito, his girlfriend at the time, but he said later in an interview that it actually might have been about a uh, a high school girl that he kn- he knew in high school too. Um, a sweet blonde as he describes her. Uh, and. Her mother threatened to get a court injunction against him to keep him away from her. Um, so there's some debate over whether it's actually about uh, Diane or not. But whatever the case, this is a gigantic band rock song that uh, everyone everyone loves, including you, I'm sure, Greg. Yeah, well, that's you know, this is what got me
1: into the Bruce in the in the early days was you know this environment that he created with all these characters, and you know, it just sounded like Bruce was having a lot more fun looking at his friends than I was having looking at my friends and we all kind of dug you know the fact that he was you know he was kind of he was local but it was very exotic it was very it was he created a very exotic world in this song and you know I'm not one of these people that kind of analyzes the lyrics to me everything is much more about like the overall mood of the song and this was just this 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 world that's opening up of, of what Bruce is all about so which is you know which led me to become not a fan as the years went on because we no longer had that no longer had that for me, you know. But, uh, you know, you know, you live and you learn and you, you you find out that as somebody, you know, ages and they have a lot more to offer. And, and Bruce has outlived so many of the writers from that generation in terms of writing some meaningful stuff. So I yeah. really super admire
0: him. Yeah, and relevance completely. And uh, this song, I mean, they're on record it's seven minutes. So when he plays it at live, it's like, what, 20 minutes long sometimes. Everything from Clarence to... Uh, D- Danny's organ work on this I mean is just killer uh, and everyone knows this is the song to play if you want to get uh, get someone to come out and hang out with you, just blast it outside their window. And, uh, and I'm sure uh, the people in New York that you grew up with must have heard this and they're like, wow people in New Jersey are actually having fun There's actually, <laughs> there's actually stuff to do down there. Um, so we have reached our final song already if you can believe it, our final song of the episode number 11. The last one before we hit the top 10, and this is a great uh, folksy narrative kind of song. Very, very different from Rosalita. Give yeah, me and
1: Frankie laughing and drinking. Nothing feels better than blood on blood. Taking turns
0: dancing with Maria. As a band played night of the Johnstown flood, I catch him when he stream, like any brother would. Alright, that was Highway Highway Patrolman at number 11 from Nebraska 1982. Nebraska, in totality, set off so many projects afterward from Tom Jode and Devils in Dust and bunch of other other things even even western stars the new album has a uh, has some elements of this type of narrative storytelling and embodying other characters in, in first person like this I think that it's so compelling the story told from the perspective of the patrolman whose brother is a criminal and who he doesn't want to arrest because family is so important to him and then the car chase at the end it's like a whole movie packed into a five minute song this is one that I go back to regularly. And I don't think a lot of people go back to it regularly. Had you listened to this before I made you listen to no, it? No, yeah, I knew
1: I, I knew this one, but I, um, you know, I, I I had when I listened to it this time and and realized the first of all it's in first person and the the character is a believable character. I mean, Bruce is really singing this like it's happening to him. It's an amazing performance, absolutely amazing. And the structure of the song is fantastic. It reminded me so much of a, a song that I love, a George Jones song that I love called. Um, the grand tour mm-hmm. and the grand tour is is a similar thing where the character introduces his his, a, his Situation and it just takes you all through the, the story and you know, it's not verse chorus verse chorus uh, Bridge chorus out. Mm-hmm. This is like a narrative story that really has a, a beginning and an ending and the ending is it, It's very thought-provoking. It's just fantastic. This is the highest art I mean if Bruce only wrote one song and wrote this song he would be immortalized. It's fantastic. So just get, again, the variety and the different styles that he's able to, different characters he's able to become, uh, the observations that he makes. And this is a giant. You know, we're really lucky.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, th- this episode, that these ten songs that we talked about, Greg, I think in particular are, are really a span of his uh, insanely chameleonic career. And uh, the one thing I did not know about the song, because like I like I said, he packs a whole sort of a whole movies worth of narrative into one song that this actually was the, the uh, impetus for a movie that Sean Penn made called The Indian Runner in 1991 starring uh, Viggo Mortensen and uh, I don't know someone else Viggo Mortensen plays uh plays Frankie the uh, the criminal and uh, and it's 100% true it's all it's based off of that that song and he, and Sean Penn crafted a whole movie around it um, so I think if you can write one song and a few verses of music and poetry essentially that someone makes a whole feature length movie out of, I think you're, you're doing something right. Um, well, Greg, thank you so much and I'm gonna end this as I end every episode with a Springsteen trivia question for you. I know I, already, <laughs> I know I already gave you one, I but messed, I'm gonna give I you, messed up an easy one too. so I'm yeah. gonna give you another All one. Right. And it's a born to run centric because you worked on the album and I can't imagine how many times you had to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna it's a multiple choice question. Finish this lyric from Tenth Avenue Freeze out. So it starts off well I was stranded in the jungle. Is it, I was stranded in the jungle, bright and lined with the light of the living, and I'm all alone, trying to take back, trying to take in all the heat that I was giving, or, and the big man joined the band. So, while I was, well, I was stranded in the jungle, which one of those? Do I need to read it again? Did I confuse you? <laughs> I was stranded in the jungle. Hey, what's the, what's the choices? Uh, it starts bright and lined. And I'm All Alone, Trying to Take In, or And the Big Man Joined the Band?
1: Um, I think the Bright Line one.
0: No. Uh, <laughs> wrong, Greg. Uh, and I did, and I probably because they did a terrible <laughs> job delivering that question. It wasn't that great, but I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone... Um, it was, Well, I Was stranded in, the, stranded in the Jungle, Trying to Take In All the Heat They Was Giving. Yeah. So That's right. with that. Correct. Yeah. With that, Greg, you're going to go back and listen to it and make sure you know all the lyrics for uh, next time. Oh, yeah. But, Greg, thank you. My thank you, guys, Thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you are listening to some great new album, there's a good chance that Greg worked on it. Um, and uh, you can check out what Sterling Sound is doing. Uh, they're based in Edgewater, New Jersey, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, they're, they're doing a lot of amazing things. Uh, and uh, I'm Bobby, and we have one episode left. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Have a good one.